Welcome to the Government Department hot seat, or actually two hot seats today, because I'm here with Patrick Dunleavy, and we're going to talk about the impact of the local elections, and indeed the London mayoral election, on the future of British politics. Uh, I think it's fair to say, Pat, that the local elections were good for Labour, but not necessarily evidence that Labour's going to win the next general election, but a good starting point for uh, Labour to rebuild itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, every time we have a four-year term normally, uh, around about year two or year three, there's some kind of crisis for the government. They lose hundreds of councillors. That certainly happened this time. The opposition party does terribly well because their people turn out. The government people will stay at home because they're a bit fed up. It looks very good for the opposition party, but we need to discount for this kind of mid-term volatility, really. And you mentioned the turnout. I mean, the turnout was dreadful. It was around 32, I think, percent outside London, about 38 in London. And this, you know, just before the French, 81% of the French voted for their president anyway. But past that, um, the London mayor. Now, the London mayor saw Boris Johnson voted back, uh, defeating Ken Livingstone, who's now said it's his last ever race. I mean, what do you make of Boris as a sort of Boris and the future and David Cameron. I mean, this is something I'm sure we can discuss at some length. I, I actually think that in, in some ways, Boris winning is a bit of a tragedy for him. I think the optimal result for him would have been to gallantly just fail to win. To, uh, he performed very well, uh, you know, much stronger than the Conservative Party in London. And, uh, you know, he's, he's had a reasonable record as, as a first term of mayor. It wasn't totally clear what he was going to do differently in the second term. Uh, it seemed to be a fairly low-key programme. He looked a bit bored to me campaigning, and he, he was rather conspicuously absent from TV studios and, and not really putting himself about much. So, uh, you know, if he'd just lost, he would have been, uh, right now, he'd be back in his, uh, you know, uh, London home thinking about finding a Conservative Party seat. And then, who knows, next year he could be back in Parliament, 2013 or 2014. Now he seems to be locked out till 2016, which is an awfully long time. Well, I suppose he could um, stand as an MP if there were a general election in 2015. I mean, remembering that both uh, Boris Johnson and Ken Livingstone were MPs when they became mayor and then uh, dropped being an MP and just carried on being mayor. There's no reason why it can't be done in reverse. I mean, Boris will only be standing now till 2016, whatever happens. He almost certainly wouldn't run again. So he could, if he wanted to, get a seat, stand for the Conservatives in a 2015 election, and then gradually move his time across the river from City Hall to Westminster and begin to give David Cameron even more awkward time. But by then, David Cameron will be, what, six years into his premiership before he could, or his leadership of the Conservative Party? Whereas actually there's a, you know, there's a good argument for saying that things have suddenly turned fairly rocky on the economic front. The coalition government has committed itself to uh, an austerity program that now doesn't seem to be working. Even David Cameron himself mentioned that uh, the, the coalition government could be seen as like a couple of accountants who were you know, nerdily cheese-bearing away but didn't have any kind of program. Yeah. Uh, the Liberal Democrats have been doing so badly also, and did very badly in this round of uh, midterm elections, including coming fourth in London instead of third, which is a dreadful result for them. Um, they've been doing so badly that almost a kind of rational thing to do in many ways would be for them to 
cut out of the coalition early. So although everybody says we have a fixed-term parliament, there'll be a, uh, a general election in 2015, what if the coalition collapses or the Liberal Democrats withdraw in 2013 or 14? That would be the time when Boris Johnson should be in Parliament to put maximum pressure on David Cameron. So that you say, well, David, you didn't win in 2010, you ran the coalition, it hasn't worked out, it's time for a true blue, authentic, vote-winning Conservative like Boris, he becomes the leader, you go to a general election, and uh, maybe he wins an outright majority. I mean, you point to an interesting issue that nobody's really discussed yet, and that is that there will be other Conservative MPs in Parliament who fancy being leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister, who will not be at all keen on Boris Johnson returning with all the possibilities that that brings. And so somebody like, say, David Davis, who I think is probably the favoured Conservative leader of the sort of right-wing faction that's been putting a lot of pressure on Cameron. You only have to wonder what it would be like from somebody like his point of view. Uh, they would presumably want, if there was an opportunity, to become leader sooner rather than later. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, the other person that everybody talks about if Cameron stood down or fell under a bus would be George Osborne, but George Osborne is even more implicated in this economic strategy that's not working out so very well. David Davis, interesting, ran against Cameron uh, and, and, and didn't win, obviously didn't become Tory leader before. Uh, you know, anti-European, quite a blunt sp speaking, commonsensical guy, quite, quite a nice guy actually, but um, somehow I don't see him as the Tory leader. So it's possible the economy will start to grow, of course, you know, buoyed by Mr. Hollande's victory on the other side of the channel that Europe will change, and paradoxically, Britain will be dragged up with a change in the Eurozone. What about that, if it happened? Yes, I don't think anybody ever lost money by betting on slow growth in the British economy. <laughs> That's my view. So we think that Boris is probably, I think Boris is, um, I think, he's, I think he's in a slightly better position than you are, if I'm honest, Patrick. I think that um, Boris will ambitiously seek the best time to go back to Parliament, even if he's still in City Hall. And he must be hoping that Cameron stays the full five years, however that's achieved. And then a bit after that, because that seems to me his best path forward uh, as a sort of king over the water, waiting for the Conservative leadership to change. And of course, if the economy did get better, the Conservatives and the coalition more generally, and this is what they must be hoping, could pick up in the run up to a general election in 2015. That must be what they're all hoping for. Okay, but if David Cameron wins in 2015 with an outright majority, that's curtains for Boris. He becomes like Bonnie Prince Charlie, the person who never, you know, looked very romantic and dashing and all that, mm. never actually got to do it. And we're really assuming Ed Miliband's in position forever now, do we, after these local elections? That's probably a bit optimistic, isn't it? I mean, the local elections have sort of taken some of the pressure off him, no doubt about that. But if the opinion polls narrowed again or things started to do better for the Conservatives and these things do move around, those questions would re-emerge, wouldn't they? He's had a good patch and the government certainly had a very bad patch, but, you know, politics being what it is, it could all switch back again. I think most of the criticisms that I've heard about Ed Miliband seem to me to be, you know, incredibly naive criticisms. If you become Labour leader in very early in a term, which could be lasting five years, so you're the leader of the opposition, if you developed all your policies and uh, announced them by year one or year two, 
then first of all the world could change and secondly everybody would know everything you thought very early on and become incredibly bored of you. So Miliband has pursued a kind of, I think he's got to pursue it, a sort of a slow burn strategy of growing his prominence. He's not the world's most charismatic politician, he's not the world's best known, he's been generally successful in kind of building things up. Possibly he's too right-wing for the Labour Party in these times, and possibly that will create, you know, problems down the line. But I think whoever it was who took over as Labour leader after a very bad general election result would have had to take it fairly slow and to try and preserve some novelty. And on the whole, I think he's he's got he's not really committed on lots of big policies and. A lot of people still aren't entirely sure what they think of him. He's not doing great, he's not doing badly, he's been faced with a difficult hand. Ken Livingstone interviewed on the BBC uh, at the beginning of the week, uh, said that he thought, having lost the London election, I might add, that Ed Miliband should not go back to sort of discredited Blairite policies and should definitely take the party away from the sort of new Labour Blairite way of doing things. Personally, I think that's probably a bit of a risk for Labour. They definitely need to keep their sort of centrist coalition in place, the thing that Blair, whatever people think of him, used to win those three vast election victories. And I think Livingston was sort of tempting um, Miliband towards a slightly more left-wing view of the Labour Party. That doesn't sound right to me. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we're not in a two-party system. We, we're not even in a three-party system. We're in a four, five, or six-party system. So all of the parties now have interesting, complicated decisions to make. Mm. David Cameron has, has, has lost votes to UKIP and the anti-European uh, right wing. Uh, they did reasonably well. Uh, the BNP uh, are, are way down, but the UKIP are still in there and kicking. Um, so he's got this problem of, you know, you've got parties on both wings and if you move in one direction towards the Liberal Democrats then you lose people to UKIP. If you move back to UKIP then maybe the coalition fragments. Similarly, Ed Miliband has got people on his left. The Greens did very well. Greens ran third in London, which is uh, not bad at all, uh, beating the Liberal Democrats. Uh, they're certainly building council seats. Respect has won a seat in Parliament, won some councillors in Bradford. So the people on his left, if he was to drift too far towards the centre-right, then that could become more of a, an irritant. And you need to lose one or two percent of your vote share there in a very tight race for that to make a big difference. So I think it's a more complicated picture for all the party leaders, yeah. and particularly for Nick Clegg in the middle, whose political fortunes look quite dire at this point. I mean, if the Lib Dem vote evaporates, because all their protest votes are going away, and you rightly say, I completely agree, that the, the Greens and UKIP have clearly picked up some of the protest vote, which is, you know, not, could go a lot further to the extremes than that, um, particularly on the UKIP side. But the Lib Dems evaporating could undoubtedly, I would have thought, bring about benefits for the Conservatives at the next election, because generally, as the Liberal Democrats recede, Conservatives accidentally pick up seats, just as the Lib Dem vote goes down, because there are so many places where the Lib Dems are second to Conservatives, and many fewer where they're second to Labour. Yes. Well, I agree. I think that one of the great, uh, you know, there's a great long-range story that says Mrs Thatcher won because she was a very dominant conservative bloc against a fragmented opposition that was split between the Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Tony Blair 
One, because he managed to pull the Liberal Democrats back to backing Labour second, and mm. that, that, that created three really big election victories in a row. And, uh, you know, it's still the, uh, th these are the voting blocks. There's about 40%, roughly 35-40% Tory, 35-40% Labour, and there's a huge mass of people who are charging around in the middle. I actually think the Liberal Democrats could take a little bit of comfort from the fact that their vote in these local elections was about 16%, one in six voters, whereas if you looked at the opinion polls, they were saying maybe one in 12. So they've actually done better than the opinion polls. Whether they could carry that through to a general election is interesting. I mean, this isn't an interview, this is a discussion, but you were, let me ask you a question. You were one of the architects of the London mayoral voting system all those years ago. And looking at the way people voted in the mayoral election, which is a supplementary vote system where people can vote for a first and a second preference vote, it still doesn't look as if people have fully worked through the logic of that to me. I mean, I might be wrong that they, they kind of know it's a race between Ken and Boris, but then a lot of people use their second preference votes, particularly for those who are not the top two candidates, or it's pretty sure who they're going to be, then to vote in ways that don't, they don't count. So there's the people who are way down the list, you know, say, who think their candidate's going to come third or fourth, then vote for other people who are not likely to come in the top two. Is that how you expected it to work? I think that, uh, that there was an interesting piece by, in The Guardian, which actually I thought insulted the intelligence of London voters in a, <laughs> a really drastic way. Uh, it said 1.1 million people had voted ineffectively in their second vote, but of those 1.1 million, almost a million, were people who had already voted for Ken or Boris, so they voted completely effectively. Uh, we live in a multi-party multi system now. People have multiple preferences. If they voted for Ken or Boris, their second vote isn't going to count because it's going to be in one of those big piles for the top two. But people still want to indicate, using their second vote, which of the other smaller parties they, they are keen on. That's perfectly rational and, and, and completely wonderful. Actually, the number of voters who voted twice for parties that weren't in the top two, for, never put Ken or Boris in, was only 7%. Okay. And, you know, supposing I'm a Green and then I want to vote Liberal Democrat, what's irrational about that? Or I'm a BNP supporter and then I vote for UKIP because I can't bear to vote for, the, for Boris. I, I, I think those are perfectly rational choices. Well, of course, one of the great things about this election, certainly for those who study elections, is there's so much detail that we can get out of the voting, which you can't in many other kind of elections. But just briefly, on the assembly, which Labour did very well in, and won extra seats, they're now up to 12. On the assembly, uh, the additional member system, actually the Conservatives and Labour now have 21 of the 25 seats. Uh, so although we're in a period of multi-party democracy in Britain, oddly these two old parties have got 21 of 25 seats. Does that surprise you? No, and uh, it, it doesn't because I think, first of all, the assembly is a very small body. So there's only 25 seats there. Every time somebody inches like one vote ahead of somebody else, then 4% of the seats change hands. So you, you, you're not going to get a very close fit between votes and seats. So the Tories had, for example, 32% of the votes ended up with 38% of the seats. That's one reason. The second reason is that um, the, uh, 
there's a 5% rule, so small parties don't get represented. They have to get across this 5% threshold. And in this election, there was, first of all, a bit of a swing back to the two main parties. Secondly, there was a, quite a fragmentation amongst the small parties, so quite a few of them dropped below the threshold. And, uh, but, uh, you know, the Greens are in there and uh, UKIP's in there, so there's, there, there's some diversity. And because it's very balanced, that diversity counts. Okay, right. Well, from Patrick and from me, uh, we've talked about the local elections, the London elections, and the implication for the national political scene. Thanks very much.